Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lyndon Willoughby, joined, as always, by my co-host from a different location. We've been doing a little bit of that recently, Matt. I mean, we have. It's a it's a 40-minute drive from my apartment to your house. So, like, you know, sometimes, especially when we do two recordings in a week, maybe I just want to, you know, not drive for 40 minutes. <laughs> maybe you want to just not. I get yeah. that. I understand so, completely. Now that I know how to use all the hardware and software myself, it's, uh, you know, convenient and that's the joy of not doing a live studio audience or uh you know anything like that or youtube and uh, we get to just record from wherever so uh, yeah i mean a lot of people don't know but in early sacred realms days uh matt was living about 10 minutes away from my house and so it was very easy for us to get together in the same location record every episode that way that combined with uh the fact that i refused to educate matt in the correct operation of his audio equipment meant that i just like really had him in a in a corner on this whole thing like the terms of this arrangement were up to me so yes it felt like it felt like uh you know the mafia boss who has total control over the peon but he's like making the peon think think that he's doing all of this for his own reasons and really he's just listening to the mafia overlord that's that's kind of the relationship that we had i had you under my thumb matt that's absolutely accurate but now i I am sort of free and now i mostly just do this because (laughs) i want to do it genie you're free (laughs) but it is a great day indeed we uh are recording and i think for the first time we have two guests instead of one we were supposed to do that earlier this season but patrick was unable to join us and we just had ben so we've got a little bit of like a we quadrangle uh, going on we we did we did have both ben and pat for their bonus, a bonus episode. episode yeah so yeah but yeah. first mainstream episode with two co-hosts well, let me take this opportunity now that Matt's uh, teed up a perfect segue for me to introduce one of our two co-hosts for the evening. You know him, you love him. He's been on a bunch of times and he'll be on a bunch more times after this. Ladies and gentlemen, Max Nichols of Bungie, soon to be my co-worker. How you doing, Max? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. This is always one of my favorite events. So I'm excited to talk about the Ice Palace. Which... I- uh, Less within, excited to talk about the Ice Palace. <laughs> within within two seconds of getting to the Ice Palace and checking the map, I immediately knew why you wanted to talk about it, Max, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our second guest, who uh, some of you may know if you keep up with our bonus content, if you're on the Patreon, if you're subbed on iTunes. We have welcomed this guest to the show once before in the Ocarina of Time season for a truly spectacular conversation about the artistic legacy of the Zelda series in which Matthew surprisingly acquitted himself uh, surprisingly well. Yay for the non-artist in the group. Yay. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome Melora of History of Hyrule back to the podcast. Melora, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me back on, especially during my probably favorite game in the Zelda series. Ooh, Ooh. leading with leading with the take. Okay, I get, I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> I, I've come to understand that you and Max come from a very similar um, school of thought on I guess your your favorite Zelda games, the ones that you uh, enjoy the most, 
right? I know that we like similar ones like greatly. I don't always know if it's for the same reason, but I know we love a lot of the same things about them. So, you know, there's just enough differences to like make it really interesting. Like that's why I love conversations with them so much because I'm like, I didn't think about it that way. That's great. You know? Yeah. There's a few key differences too. like, I don't think, I don't think you love the wind waker nearly as much as I do, for instance, but uh, otherwise we're pretty similar. (laughs) But I, I love, I actually, I didn't think I'd like the wind waker and then I played it and I thought the gameplay was a lot of fun and I actually did really enjoy it though. I did want a little bit more like fights. So, I mean, but, I'm kind of shocked yeah, though know, because, like, but not as much. like yeah. for, it's because Wind Waker being known as kind of like the Zelda game with maybe the most distinctive art style, I, f- I figured that would be right up your alley. Uh, honestly, as much as I love art, I mean, art, I've been drawing since I was two. Um, it's not my main driver in why I like a video game. The gameplay has to be really fun. Um, and then if, the art is amazing, then that's incredible. And, you know, I'll love that forever. Mm -hmm. But um, they're almost two completely separate things for me. So that makes sense. I I can definitely actually think of a a fair amount. I don't know. uh, The rise of of the successful indie game, I think, has given us a lot of somewhat smaller gaming experiences that serve mostly as vehicles for interesting artistic experiences, you know? So like there's kind of a, an interesting overlap there of like, to what extent is your game completely solid and groundbreaking from a gameplay perspective versus. And that's true. There know. are games I'll play purely for like the beautiful art and scenery. I mean, the gameplay has got to be good enough to be able to just it for it to function. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some games that are just so stunning. It's like, I just want to see the next screen, yeah. you know? So, so, so a little what bit of background. Say, oh, hold on. What would you say is the game that pops forefront of your mind when you think about a game like that? Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I can picture all of the scenes. It, was, it wasn't like Banner Saga or something like that. I don't know. It was some wintry, like Norse seeming game. It, and it was, was it just, like uh, Oregon Trail, but with uh, Norse apocalypse? Yeah, I think so. That was Banner so. Saga. Okay, then I got the name right. Yeah, I think it was that. <laughs> Unless I'm getting it like mixed up with something else. But that's the other problem. If it's really beautiful for the art, I literally just remember it like I flipped through a picture book and I don't re- I don't remember a bunch of the other stuff because my memory is so bad. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, you know. But yeah, that was really gorgeous. Yeah, so. that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so uh, top of mind for me, I guess, is like, uh, the, so it was kind of an um, a puzzle platformer adjacent game that came out last year i never know how to pronounce it it's it's gree grease gris i don't know it's g-r-i-s and i never figured out the right way to pronounce it but it was like this beautiful watercolor palette and from what i understand the gameplay is much more similar to like journey and in that it's not super complex which isn't to say it's unfun to play but like you know it mostly is just about telling a story um using the art as kind of the vehicle to do that so I like those. I think they're fun. Yeah. There was a there was an old oh, I don't even remember what system it was on. It was a Squeenix game that was like Saga Frontier or something like that. And they just remade it and it was such a shame from what I saw because it used to have all these it was sprite based, like linked to the past, but you know, a little further out. Um, and it was like all the backgrounds were like the old square soft, like watercolor palette, and it was gorgeous. But I couldn't play it. It was like too difficult for me in some way. I don't remember how. 
But I just remember being like, oh, I love this. And I got like a bunch of art books for it, even though I couldn't play the game. So, hey, you know, (laughs) you know what? If you enjoyed it, regardless of being able to play it, then I feel like that's a point in its favor. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to like, no, I'm like, yeah, it was really great. My husband could play it. I think it was a little bit more strategy and Mm -hmm. I just checked out or it got too complicated or something. So So, Max and Melora, just a little background for all of our listeners. Um, You guys actually and the, the big reason that we brought you onto this episode together, being two people who love games very much but come from very different perspectives, I guess. Melora from a very visually interested side of things and then Max with a very technical knowledge of game design, right? Um, but you you two are friends, right? Like you you are your buddies going a long way back. Yep. Oh yeah, very long way back. One of the people I've known the longest outside of real life like elementary school friends. So it's kind of amazing. So thank you for having us on together. I'm yeah. super excited about this. Yeah, Melora is my oldest friend of anyone I keep in touch with. Oh, my gosh. You're probably like, <laughs> wow. there's probably only Dang. three other people I know that I've only, like, I keep in touch with that I knew before you. So, like, in my whole life. So <laughs> it's pretty neat. Awesome. Well, I cannot wait to get into a lot of excellent conversations, have some good crosstalk. We're going to get into a whole lot of stuff today, including some discussions uh, that we don't typically necessarily have in our, our regular episodes. But we will, of course, be doing our Sacred Realms rundown, talking about the dungeon and everything that we played in this section of the game. Um, I think our listenership is, like I said, very familiar with Max um, as an employee at Bungie and guy who likes to come on this show and tell us all sorts of things we never knew about the history of game design, um, quotes from obscure developers, all that kinds of things. <laughs> um, so uh, I do want to give you, Melora, just a second because you've only been on the one bonus episode to let all of our listeners know who you are, but mainly – uh, talk for a second about history of Hyrule, what that is, um, and you know, kind of where it's going because it's something that I am very personally interested in, and I, I just want to help you spread the word about it as much as possible. Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw out real quick that my site's been around long enough that I'm personally invested with some of the stuff that like goes on in the episode because like we didn't even know the names of the link to the past bad guys until I got a guide and scanned it. And then Davo's site, uh, ZeldaLegends.net, translated it. So that's when we learned all the names of the Japanese bad guys in Link to the Past. So this actually came up last week. Were they not in the manual for Link to the Past? No. Oh, there were like four of them in there. It was like, yeah, they just made up names, like random things like Mm. Graboid, you know, like for the book. Yes. It was just like random stuff. Um, But from there, so I kind of started out. You know, just doing random things. But that all actually ties back to what I'm still doing or came back to do is I've been scanning all of the rare Zelda material that I can get my hands on. And for me, that's mainly just going to be um, some Japanese guides. uh, And I'm doing archival scans. I'm uploading them to archive.org so they're easier for people to find. Um, Probably about 60 volumes of Zelda manga that people don't really seem to know exists, which is a shame because a lot of it actually has interesting things from uh, the games that hadn't appeared in the games yet. So it's really fun to do. And then um, after that, I am, after I'm done scanning, one of the reasons I'm doing that besides it just needs to be done is I'm trying to amass the most impossible task of 
every piece of Zelda art that's ever existed ever in an <laughs> official or semi-official capacity, like, you know, stuff that was done for like Nintendo Power and uh, guides that are like licensed, but maybe not done in-house. Mm-hmm. I call that semi-official. Yeah. Um, just because I don't know what else to call it. And then um, basically continue to try to always find the best version of that possible and then just have an easy to access archive. So people who need it for their wikis or their sites or their fan art projects or just for nostalgia, you know, so they have that accessible. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. Odds are if you see a piece yeah, of, one of the ones... art on the Internet, it was one of her scans. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I started doing it because <laughs> you couldn't find it. Uh, ZeldaLegends.net was, which is kind of a connection that Max and I have, was one of the few sites that had a little bit of a gallery. And so I kind of got in contact with the webmaster there and kind of worked there for a little bit while I also worked on my own site to just try to get more art on the web. But yeah, all of the Katsuya Tirada art, like mm. you couldn't really find that. And I was like, that's just a crime. So I bought the guide for a hundred dollars because you couldn't find it and scanned it and got it on the net. And that's pretty much where it all started. So Mac, Max, isn't it you, don't you have the Tarada depiction of the, um, of the Southern face shrine windfish on you somewhere? Yeah, yep, yep, there it is. Uh, all right. On my, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember what one one that came across my feed a few weeks ago was a piece of promotional art from the Symphony of the Goddesses and oh actually no it was from the um it was from the anniversary soundtrack CD that came out uh and it was uh, so obviously it had Cass with his accordion and then Link um with uh i'm trying to think who all was in this anyway i'm messing this up but it had a depiction of skyward sword zelda goddess costume zelda rendered in breath of the wild's conceptual art style and it was like a piece of official promotional art for that soundtrack it's so cool yeah that was um oh this is so if anyone ever wants to help with this it's amazing what collectors have so if you collect stuff back in the day new stuff you may have something that doesn't really have a high quality scan on the internet and that could be useful. Like people may be wanting that. And what you saw was actually, there was a little tiny digital version that was like on one of their like symphony sites. Um, And I'm like, ah, there has to be a larger version of this somewhere. And the first world record holder for um, the largest Zelda collection um akana she was like oh i have that i have a bunch of that so she scanned it and (laughs) got it to us and she just didn't know you know because it's like if you're not nitpicking every little piece of art on the internet you may not know what's missing and you just assume that it's out there but it's amazing what gets lost to time Mm -hmm. like all things don't last forever on the internet um sometimes unfortunately though rarely but in this case yeah it's unfortunate that a lot of the art gets lost and what's the the web address where people can find that archive and then also your social media handle oh yeah so if you just go to historyofhyrule.com um all of the links to uh my social media handles which are usually just historyofhyrule.com so twitter um it's the galleries on Flickr. Um, at historyofhyrule.com mm. so or history of hyrule on Flickr. so yeah that's pretty much it it's been the same url for i 
think 19 years because before there I had an angel fire site. So, oh yeah. <laughs> gotcha. So, uh, okay. So everyone definitely go check that out because it is quite the comprehensive collection of um, Zelda artwork in the best possible quality that you can really find it on the internet. And it's a, a really cool thing that Melora is doing. So go check it out. It is well worth your time if you're even a little interested in the artwork of the uh, of the Legend of Zelda. Um Okay, so before we move on, I do have one question. We were talking about this on our last episode between Matt, Mike, and myself, but a uh, uh, fun little point of conversation that I'm going to start bringing up a little bit more often. Um, Max, we're going to go with you first, and then we're going to go to Melora. What are you guys playing these days that's not Zelda? Uh, I'm playing Eastward on my Switch, um, which is a... Uh, you know, lots of aesthetic inspiration from Chrono Trigger. It's an indie game, but it's kind of a top-down action game. Um, it's a uh, beautifully illustrated kind of sprite artwork um, mm. and uh, retro wave soundtrack. Like, it's pretty cool stuff. It's worth checking out a trailer. If that inter- any of those things I said interests you, <laughs> listener. It, it sounds like something that me, as a fan of Hyper Light Drifter, might enjoy. Absolutely. It has a lot of the same vibes as Hyper Light Drifter. Awesome. Melora, what are you playing these days? Um, an excessive amount of Minecraft, and that's pretty <laughs> much it. <laughs> They've had their past two updates. Um, the other one just came out, and I'm like, well, my castle needs to be redecorated, and <laughs> I um, I may be building, you know, the three, um, three not really close, but they'll be themed. Um, over the first three strongholds, I have to build, you know, the shrines to the goddesses. So I'm going to build, uh, you know, there you go, you know, did, uh, a little forest temple. You had a hard drive <laughs> failure recently, right? Did you recover? I did. Your Minecraft I think worlds? I may have. Oh no! Uh, but, yeah. So I've only lost like a week's worth of work, which is still in. Uh, that's like so much work. Yes, so. It is. I'm going to pay an excessive amount of money probably to get that recovered, hopefully. <laughs> so, yep. But all my Zelda stuff is fine, except for one small folder with some Python scripts that I'm going to bug my husband to rewrite for me. So I've, he gets to do all that fun again. I've tried to um, get into just pure creation mode on Minecraft several times. And like, I wish I had the patience for it because it's such a cool tool. Like there was, uh, I think two years ago, I was just browsing the internet one day and I found this dude who had created a completely scale recreation of the enterprise d in minecraft and it was like and he had planned it out just to like okay if one block is this measurement then this is what the entire thing should be right it was like a scary accurate recreation of of that ship and i was just like oh my gosh this is so freaking cool i'm gonna go try to do something like now and then i i did it for like two hours and was like i don't have close to the amount of patience necessary to like (laughs) do anything like this you didn't feel like doing all the resource farming and creating the proper types of blocks and well in creation in creation mode you don't have to do that right oh yeah you can just it's like free reign legos it's like like kid picks yeah all of it yeah it's um uh you still have to like you know if you want to dig your pit into the bottom of the earth so that ganon is located down there then that takes you a couple of days and that may be why i want to be recovering my file not to get too specific right it's not like that's a real thing that you're talking about it's just no no i mean i would never do that that is just insane so purely hypothetical theoretically yes exactly 
Matt, we recorded like two days ago, but yeah. I just want to I want to get a check from you. Have you gotten any any more of the way through Metroid Dread since we talked last? No, not not since two days ago. Um, Unacceptable. I have, gotten, I have gotten a little bit further in Halo Infinite, so I only have one beacon left to activate instead of two. But yeah, cool. Sounds like I just fun. installed that this evening. I need to, I haven't played it yet, but Dude, I'm going to get to it soon. So good. Yeah, I think you'll like it a lot. It's really good. Really good. Um, anywho, uh, we, I, you know, I, I would love to spend an entire podcast episode talking about games that are not Zelda, but what I really want to do is talk about games that are Zelda. So let's go ahead and shift gears and get into that section of the podcast. Before we do that, let's get a little housekeeping out of the way. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, be sure to leave us a review. Turns out that reviews are now a thing you can do, or at least ratings are, on Spotify. So if you listen on Spotify, please feel free to go leave us the highest possible amount that you can uh, as well, because that's a really nice thing that you're able to do if you're on that platform. Uh, Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod to get access to bonus episodes write in listener mail vote on what game we play next and much more but without further ado let's talk about what we played of course we do that in the sacred realms rundown which we get around to every week but before we dive into the sacred realms rundown i'm gonna bounce a question to max and melora that we discussed before this episode apparently a thing that happens when two people who are experts to the extent uh, that these guys are in a particular game, that game being A Link to the Past, when they listen to our podcast and uh, and they hear guys like Matt and myself who are, uh, <laughs> you know, slightly less experienced um, <laughs> to a greater or lesser degree, mostly a greater degree, turns out that you end up with a lot of things that you just wish you could shout through the speaker, be like, guys – Come on, seriously. So, Max, you go first. What is like one thing that we've talked about in this season that you've just been like, oh, come on. I wish that I could like just bounce this over to you right now. So there was uh, I forget which episode it was, but you were having I think it was the Desert Palace. You were like having a conversation about like, how are we supposed to know how to go get the book of Mudora? Like, how would we know where to go? There's no hints. There's no nothing. And I was like, I'm going to go look it up in a text dump because I feel like there's something they're missing. And I like did a control F search <laughs> for like Mudora or something. And I found some text from Aganah, the old man in the desert. And then I found Sacred Realms on Twitter and I replied. And I was like, oh, if you had just seen this NPC <laughs> in the corner of the, the desert, you would have known. <laughs> you just go talk to every living soul in the light world. You'll eventually find the hint that you need <laughs> but so that, that was like, that was the example that came to mind for me <laughs> but that is like how this game kind of does things right i mean there's a lot of stuff that um you know i've played this game this is my third time and there are a few things that i've definitely done since uh booting it up for this go around that i just like I went and I did it on, with the full knowledge that I'm only doing it this way because I remember that that's how it's supposed to be done. And I did not have the energy to like go talk to all the different people and 
kind of find that the way that the game intended for me to find it. And maybe that's a little lazy, but like, I don't know. There's a lot of people to talk to. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame you at all. Like, that's an old, that's a 90s game design thing. Make, make, expect the player to talk to every NPC. God, no, I would never design that into a no, game. No, never. <laughs> Unless I have like five NPCs. <laughs> uh, if I'm making Hades, then I'll expect it. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Melora, do you have a just a flaming hot, like, guys, come on for us? <laughs> well, de- definitely the wall thing. <laughs> because I... Like, I wanted to help you so bad because I'm like, you don't have to waste your bombs. And it was, it was one of those things somewhere early in the game, someone's like, oh, it's like this little, like, you know, just throwaway thought. Like, I hear that if, you know, like walls are going to break, you know, they'll have a different sound or something like that. And, you know, but, um, you got it eventually. So we, we, <laughs> we, we got there at, at some point. <laughs> at some point it happened. Yeah, that's but that also started to lead into a kind of interesting conversation. I don't know if you want to touch on that now or later. Oh no, so. yeah, this was yeah. It, it is good because so we were talking before the podcast was <laughs> recorded and um yeah, I mean, Max, you you kind of tell us what. Yeah, I mean, yeah. When I, I jumped in, thing. I was like, yeah, in all the old interviews from that time period, like the early '90s about Link to the Past with Shigeru Miyamoto, in every interview he mentions this mechanic of being able to plink the the wall with your sword to see if it can be exploded or not. And like for some reason, it just comes through so strongly that he loves this mechanic. Like this is a thing he was dedicating a lot of thought to all the time is what it feels like reading all these old interviews um and i think that's why there are a bunch of like fake out crack walls in like mm. past yeah which is funny because like the whole hit the wall and it makes a different noise thing is carried forward into ocarina of time but i can only think of a few places in that game where it's even really applicable and also there's like such a visual texture difference on those walls that it's kind of redundant right yeah, Melora was suggesting or uh, had a theory. Yeah, there was actually a, a couple of things that happened. But yeah, so number one, like if you play the games from, you know, in the order they're played. And I think, um, was it Dan from Hyrule Broadcasters that you had on like ben. two shows ago? Ben, thank yes. you, Ben. Um, he is he your only other guest that's technically played these games in the order that they've come out because we don't I mean his mom played yeah I think I think so yeah everyone else that we've yeah. had on is either my age or a few years younger like Matt's age so they would have come on in like the Ocarina of Time era okay yeah so yeah in the first in the first game especially you literally had to go and burn every single tile to like the bushes to see which one would burn or you had to go and push every single rock and like i think he just really liked that like making you have to interact with every single aspect of the world which is in a way is a little bit like real life you know because you're like oh well there's a bunch of vines on this like giant wall you know which one would it be and it's funny because so i've listened to all the episodes that you've put out so far in this podcast and um yeah it's kind of like it it repeats throughout this whole game like 
you know, there's curtains you can cut, but there's only one time when you cut the curtains when you're chasing Agnum. Um, sorry, I'm going to pronounce names wrong, by the way. I'm only used to seeing them typed. Um, <laughs> when you cut the curtains to like chase him, you know, that's like the one time you do it, but you can cut curtains all the time. So it kind of gives you this false negative. Yeah. Um, the vines, you know, just random. Um, I'm assuming you played the gargoyles domain last time. Yes. Um, so I can talk about that now. So like there's floor tiles that look like you can bomb them and you can't, you know, like they don't do anything. Yeah, those ones and you can't some- even tap with your sword that's yep yeah exactly give it a test run see what happens (laughs) he just really loved this mechanic and like part of me as an older gamer who grew up with that mechanic i mean that was the mechanic that i always knew in the zelda series until ocarina of time came out and became a little bit more like no this is the one like this is the wall like i'm like oh okay that's fine because i that was just games for me but yeah. uh, when you guys play Adventure of Link, you're going to have some fun with walls, too. Oh, so, <laughs> man. But because uh, he loved that in another way in that one. Um, Max probably knows what I'm talking about. Just, yeah. You know, I, I, have, I have a random tangent about that one that maybe. Oh, yeah. Time for. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, yeah. Adventure of but, Link was built by an almost totally different team than Zelda 1 was the there's like two people in common between zelda one and zelda two and one of them is miyamoto who was the producer of zelda two where versus being the director slash producer of zelda one um they basically brought in like a team that otherwise focused on other nintendo properties um to like fill in the gap with zelda two so this links link to the past is the uh, in a lot of there's like an interview where he says Link to the Past is the real sequel to Zelda one. Um, and in a lot of ways it is because it's more similar yeah. style and the same team. Um, yeah, it was the only time. Well, I couldn't even play Zelda two as a kid. I didn't beat it until I was like in my 30s. So. Matt, Matt and I are living in fear of, <laughs> no, of we, the day we have we to. Are, oh, we'll help you like it. No, we're so. not excited about that game, to be honest. I know Aww. that uh, the Hyrule podcaster brothers are trying to get us on that train and we're like, mm, please don't <laughs> just like like let's go vote bomb their patreon and please please don't do that (laughs) it's coming at some point and you know what we're gonna i'm gonna give it an honest shot like hey we we have been nothing but objective about all the games we've played so we will do that just save state through it Oh, dude, yeah. I'm going yeah. to be absolutely yeah. abusing the save state <laughs> thing from the Switch. There's no there's no doubt about that. I've been I haven't used the save states. I don't really feel the need to in Link to the Past. But when it comes down to Zelda one and Zelda two, I will be abusing that save state. Well, I, I won't complain if you do it. <laughs> I, I was going to say this game kind of Link to the Past kind of because of some of the comments before and especially about uh game design and stuff which i think would be interesting for max to weigh on but this made a really good bridge in my opinion between some of the early game design choices in the original legend of zelda we'll skip adventure of link because yeah different teams such a different game Mm -hmm. um link to the past seemed to kind of be like okay well here are the old game mechanics and here's some new ones let's figure out what people like and what works and then it kind of seems like they took some of that and then went to well obviously Link's Awakening because it's just like a perfect game and sometimes I just forget that it it's is. a separate game and think it's like just more of a link to the past you know I'm like oh yeah the, the epilogue you know um, and yeah. then uh, except yeah maybe a little 
more pulled together in some aspects, but ah, I love this game. Matt. And then Ocarina of Time took a lot of this. It weeded out a lot of the stuff in the first game that wasn't going to work anymore for a newer generation and, you know, at, or for 3d. So yeah, I don't know. That's how I felt about it. So, well, there we like go. You're say something that, yeah. Oh, well, I was going to be like, what do you think? I mean, is Max, like, do you, is that essentially, do you think kind of what happened or from a game design standpoint? I mean, I don't know. That's a loaded question. <laughs> I, I definitely have a lot of thoughts. I do want to let Matt have his interjection. Oh, okay. Hey, Matt, you're muted. Oh, that's why we're not. Oh, here. that's why you can't hear me. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, guys. Look, this the uh, it is the work from home tagline. You're on mute. Um, I was going to say that I love Link to the Past, especially in light of everything about this game. I just in playing this game, obviously, it's very easy to make the comparison between a Link's Awakening because it is you know the direct successor. And wait, you mean you mean of- you look. You love Link's Awakening in light of everything happening in A Link to the Past, right? Yeah. Is that not what I said? Yeah. You said Link's. You said you love A Link to the Past in light of everything that's happening in this game, and I was like, well, that makes sense, I guess. But like, I love yeah. I love Link's Awakening in in light of everything that is happening in A Link to the Past, and like, I am gaining more of an appreciation for A Link's Awakening as I play more of A Link to the Past. To be honest, like, yeah. I feel like Link's Awakening takes everything that's good about A Link to the Past and just makes it better and condenses it a little bit. And then puts you in a unique setting. And I'm like, that's really cool. And I can totally get on board <laughs> with all of that. And that's as about well, as good of an elevator pitch for a Link's Awakening as I can imagine. Like, yeah, I, I really yeah. this a link to the past is making me appreciate Link's Awakening even more. Awesome. Well, there we go. All right, um, guys, this has been a oh, no, Max, you go. You go. Uh, I was going to start answering Laura's question, but it's kind of a big topic. So maybe we, we can get back to it later. <laughs> OK, OK, that sounds fun. That sounds fun. Let's go ahead and get into the Sacred Realms Rundown, the meat of this episode, a half hour in, and just fair warning, I'm letting this episode spin out as long as it goes, y'all. So this might be the mega rock block of people just talking back and forth with lots of different interesting perspectives. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, okay, this is the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering A Link to the Past Chapter 8, which revolves mainly around the idea. Ice Palace Dungeon. Part one is, as always, the plot recap as read by Matthew. Dash me. Matt, that's you. Take it away, sir. More than half of the captured maidens have now been freed, but we still have three to go and Zelda after them. The journey has been full of peril, but our power continues to grow as we progress along this quest. With the new Titan myths we acquired, uh, we can explore many new areas of the Dark Realm and our own world, opening new opportunities for heart pieces, upgrades to items, and entirely new items to add to our arsenal. The most useful upgrade comes in the form of tempering our sword with the friendly dwarves near Kakariko Village, empowering the already powerful Master Sword with double the original damage. The next maiden that we have to seek is trapped within the Ice Palace, and the South eastern part of the dark world where lake hylia lies in our own world this structure is surrounded by flying enemies that drop bombs on us but even more worrying is the completely impassable wall which encircles the entrance to the dungeon there is no power in our possession that can breach these frozen barriers 
but remembering our time in the Swamp Palace, we head back to our own world to see if there is a way inside the Fortress of Ice. Once back in our own Lake Hylia, we find an island inhabiting the place where the Ice Palace lays, and under a boulder is another portal square, which takes us directly into the antechamber of the dungeon. After slaying the pesky like-like, we proceed inside. The dungeon is, of course, a frozen waste, and in the first room we are accosted by a ghostly ice demon that comes from the wall. The only thing that destroys this pest is our handy fire rod, and immediately we know that this dungeon will require all the magic we can muster to survive. More so than any dungeon before, this place is full of new and dangerous enemies, like the Freezor, which we encountered in the first room. There are other enemies that roam these frozen halls, like the Pengators that slide around the slick floors and the Stalfos Knights that can only be destroyed by bombs once we crush their supporting bones. In addition to the dangerous and plentiful enemies, the great nemesis of all, the greatest nemesis of all reappears. Greg the Block is back and just <laughs> as painfully annoying as he was in Link's Awakening. <laughs> I had to throw that in there, guys. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, at this point, like people talk about like Zelda's got this problem where it's like, oh, I mean, this villain has the Zant treatment where Zant shows up, but then Ganon's the main villain or the Aghanim treatment or whatever. For Matt, it's Greg the Block. Like Greg, Greg the Greg Block the- is the main villain of every game. Hijacked by Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Thank you for enjoying that laugh with me. Anytime. <laughs> The subterranean dungeon is every bit as tricky to navigate as it is full of dangerous foes. After progressing extremely far beneath the surface, we spot the large chest containing the needed item for this dungeon. But we have to fall to lower levels to obtain the key and work our way back up. After after traversing what feels like a thousand rooms, we obtain the big key and use it to open our prize. Within is an amazing set of armor that protects us twice as much from enemy damage as our normal clothes. Since the enemies here deal so much damage, this armor is a literal lifesaver. As we continue to move through the dungeon, we open the door with the big key, and instead of facing the boss like normal, we find more puzzles to solve within. After moving through a couple more floors, there is a switch in the ground that requires constant pressure in order to keep the door on the far side of the room open. Knowing we have to drop a block from the room above, we head back up to solve this puzzle, only to be forced to entirely navigate back through most of the dungeon in order to drop the correct block to the floor below. This frustrating task accomplished, we head back, we head below to press on towards the boss. <laughs> Once finally in the deepest reaches of the temple, we confront the monster that holds the maiden captive. Cold Stare is initially encased in enchanted ice, but we quickly melted away with our handy fire rod. Once broken out of its protective coating, it splits into three clouds and flies around the room trying to hit us, while also continuing to drop ice blocks from the ceiling. All in all, the clouds are far less dangerous than the previous two bosses we have dealt with, and the fire rod plus our tempered blade and the new armor make short work of the frozen condensation. The fifth maiden descends in her blue crystal and thanks us for her rescue. She tells us how the power of the Hylian people has been dwindling since the days of the sages, And in order to strengthen the power of the people, the Knights of Hyrule must be reunited in the bloodlines of the sages. She tells us that only a short time remains before the dark world engulfs the light world, and that we must hurry to stop Ganon before this can happen. May the way of the hero lead to the Triforce. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Part two is 
our takes, where we talk about how we felt about this section of the game. I'm actually going to propose a, a little change here because there's not a whole lot of game um, that kind of precedes us actually getting into the dungeon, and I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about the dungeon. So if everybody is okay, and if nobody had anything really scorching that they wanted to say about the trip to get to the Ice Palace, then I submit that maybe we move past part two. Is everyone cool with that? Works yeah. for me. Cool. Uh, oh, I, I did have one narrative point on your plot recap, Matt. Um, so obviously we talked about upgrading the Master Sword last week. Uh, I think we all actually did that in the course of uh, going to beat um, – who was the boss of the uh, – blind, blind. Blind, yeah. In, in the course of going to beat Blind, we all upgraded the Master Sword after we got the Titan's Mitt. Um, so we technically did that last week, but it, you put it in your recap this week. Uh, one thing that I think is really – better here. It does. It really does. And it flowed very it flowed very well. Your delivery you. was impeccable. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, so I do want to say one thing I think is funny is that there's this thing that you do in both this game and A Link Between Worlds, at least. I don't know if it happens anywhere else, where you temper the Master Sword and it becomes like red and stronger. I just think it's really funny because, you know, this sword, this incarnation of the Master Sword shows back up in other games, A Link Between Worlds mainly. And it is noticeably untempered when you get it again. So is this like – I just want to – I want to unpack the fictional uh, <laughs> <laughs> implications of like tempering the sword and then it just kind of like shoops itself back to rego status between games. I, I think, think that's you're, you're pumping up the spirit of Phi – the uh the spirit of the sword uh, something I don't, I don't know she's getting on steroids <laughs> gotta be old is getting on them roids they and planned then, out skyward sword what is that 20, 20 years in advance years ago yeah they're playing four-dimensional chess in 1990 yeah in in the link to the past manga the sword tells link where bad guys are located it, in one of the scenes yeah huh. so i don't know oh in the japanese version too there's a lot of little differences like the japanese text a lot of little differences in kind of how they talk about the sword and some of the items like the magic mirror. The magic mirror can apparently only be used by the hero if you read the Japanese text and little things like that. Interesting. But yeah, the sword and uh, they. I think they imply that like your ability to shoot the beams is solely because of Link and like his inner strength and like you know chosenness. And it's not like <laughs> the sword's power. And that's how come you have to have all the hearts. Apparently, okay. Maybe, all right. The speculation. Interesting. Is, is, you know, so I don't know. Who knows? Whoops. Maybe there is something to like, maybe the sword just gets kind of like, I feel old now. I just, you know, <laughs> I need to go chill and sleep for a while. And it wakes up and it's like, I am not ready for this. Yes. Okay. So I was just going to say, I don't think tempering is a thing you do to a sword that's already finished forging. Uh, it's like definitely not. Probably not a, not really the mechanics of swords here, but I never really worried about it. Glowy, cool red sword. Awesome. Definitely I just awesome. have one minor story thing that occurred to me that I'd never noticed before. But as part of that side quest of bringing the smith home, Link brings him from the dark world to the light world with the mirror. So, like, Link has the power to just save people from the dark world, and that's the only time right? in the game he does it. <laughs> oh, my. He literally could have brought the bully back yeah. and, like, the ball and or the, everything. Or the, uh, the flute boy. He could have brought flute boy back. 
Yeah. Right? He's just like, nah, I, you know what? It becomes this whole Loot thing. Loot Boy's blood you might is on friends. your hands. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. He's like, R.I.P. Flute Boy. He breaks into people's houses and breaks all their furniture and pots. He doesn't care. Hey, sorry, sorry, Flute Boy. We could have saved you. We simply chose not to. So, (laughs) oh man. Okay, so I guess the Sacred Realms head canon is that we uh, we we just pumped Fee way up, and then uh, she took a little bit of a nap and woke up. You know, back at <laughs> yeah, back at, back at square so one. Groggy. Actually, that is kind of interesting though, because obviously in Breath of the Wild, you know, we've got cutscenes where the highly damaged Master Sword gets put into the pedestal oh, by yeah. Zelda, and then by the time we get it, it has healed itself. So I guess it does have like restorative, regenerative properties that, like, I guess maybe we just stumbled onto something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna call it supported marginally by canon <laughs> Marg- marginally supported yes. i like okay that. cool okay bit. well let's go ahead and move on to the dungeon map where we're going to get the most of the conversation that we can um in this episode and i want to pass it over first to matt uh because his delivery of the plot recap led me to believe that he has certain feelings about things that happen in this dungeon <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny i actually really liked this dungeon until we got to the part where you have to completely re-circumnavigate all the way back to the other side to drop the block from the opposite side of the wall. Like, up to that point, I was, like, all about this dungeon. I was like, I know that Max generally picks dungeons that I hate, so I know that whenever we have him on an episode, (laughs) I'm most likely going to be the one that did not enjoy it. So I, like, was going into this knowing that I probably was not going to like this dungeon. And I got, like, to that point, and I opened the door with the big key, and I was like, this has been really great. Like, Let's just go through, fight the boss, and we're, we'll call it done. And I was like, oh, okay, this is not the boss. That's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. Go down into the into the land below, and I'm like, okay, it's still not the boss, but that's fine. Uh, da, 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 do some things. Oh, I, sh- I should drop that block down. So I go up, drop a block down, and then you can't push it far enough over. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> this is where it's going to hit me. And it did indeed. It, it hit. I just... Yeah, hated that with a passion. Yeah. But everything before that, so much fun. Like, I really enjoyed um, progressing through a lot of these um, kind of maze-like areas. I didn't even hate the slidey floors as much as normal. I normally really hate slidey floors. I think they're kind of lazy, but didn't really hate them. Uh, the enemies were fun. The giant green penguins uh, were interesting enemies. Um, and, like... <laughs> Getting the blue armor was really cool. Like the blue armor was a really cool item to get. And even the way you had to like, you could see it, but you had to go down and then kind of back up to get to the blue armor didn't bother me at all. I thought it, it at least brought you into some new areas and you got to you know see some cool things mm-hmm. and beat some enemies. I felt like it made really good use of a, a variety of items like the fire rod. Um, and I used my magic meter 10 times more in this dungeon than I have at every other point in the game previous to this combined. But it also like kept giving you enough magic powder or you know magic meter to refill, so I never felt like I was scarce running out. Uh, all in all, very, very good dungeon, except for the very annoying circumnavigating back to the edge of the world to drop the right block. And that just yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and send it over next to Max because, so like I said, anytime... 
we hit max up to be on a season, I start off with like, hey, which dungeons do you think you can like, what do you want to talk about? Because you've got a lot of interesting perspective on all of this. Um, And so I want to send it to you next. And I just want to say that as soon as I got into this dungeon and excuse the train in the background, um, as soon as I got into this dungeon and checked the map and saw that there were 10 floors, I was like, ah, that's a max dungeon. No doubt. Like, (laughs) that sounds about right. Yeah, I I didn't realize that about myself until I started being on this podcast, but I really do gravitate towards the vertical dungeons for whatever reason, as the ones that are interesting to talk about, even if they're not necessarily my favorite. Uh, I remember this dungeon, Ice Palace, which, by the way, does not feel like a palace inside. Nope. Uh, (laughs) Not luxurious. Um, But I remember this dungeon being just brutal for me as a kid because i got to it without the sword upgrade because right before this dungeon is the first time you can get the sword upgrade Mm -hmm. um and so i missed it i went in without it and like i didn't know how to kill the penguins and they they take like a ton of sword hits especially without the sword upgrade dude they are beefy they take four hits from the upgraded sword yeah like it's crazy and i didn't make the connection as a child to just use bombos medallion and wipe them all out at once um, which is how I do it these days. Uh, and so like this was, and, and of course the slidey floors and the puzzle, which I'll talk about more in a second, um, the dropping the block down puzzle. Uh, so like overall, this is just an inhospitable dungeon, um, especially in my first experience with it. Um, but yeah, the, the uh, it's interesting because it's one of the first places you're really encountering enemies that you have to use um, weapons, different uh, different gear to defeat. Mm. Uh, like you'll you'll be, get into a room and there'll be three different enemy types, and two of them you can't just kill with your sword. Um, and there hasn't really been a lot of that before. You can usually kind of just power through stuff with sword swings if you want. Um, up to this point in the game, um, exceptions here and there, of course. Sure, um, but like this dungeon forces you to break out your magic tools a lot. Mm. Uh, like Matt mentioned. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the interesting things this dungeon does is it is very maze-like, probably the most maze-like dungeon so far in the game. Um, and the reason it feels that way is because, uh, first of all, it's very vertical. There's a bunch of different floors. Second of all, you go up and down a lot. Um, and it's hard to tell, like, Going up the stairs in Link to the Past feels very similar to going downstairs. You kind of just need to like look and pay attention to the sprites of the staircase. Otherwise, you're you don't even know whether you're going up or down, really. Um, versus like a 3D game where it's like very visceral, like you you see a downward slope when you go down the slope. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no seeing up or down in this one. Um, and then last but not least, the rooms. A lot of them feel really similar. Um, like there's a lot of rooms that are like have I been here before? Like this is, this is laid out the same way as the one above or there are uh, at least three rooms that have a, some combination of guillotine tiles plus slidey tiles plus anti-fairy plus penguins. <laughs> like there's at least three rooms that have that exact combination of thing with like one or two other things thrown in there. Yeah. As, yeah. So you've, we've got the inhospitable mechanics, um, including movement, uh, debuffs basically from the icy floors, which are always painful. Um, we've got the fact that it's a maze that you get lost in. And then we've got that puzzle. Um, and this puzzle is actually better than I remembered it being. I was surprised. Uh, 
but it's still kind of problematic. They actually cut this puzzle in the GBA version of the game. Really? Um, I don't know if any of you have played that one, but the whole puzzle where you drop a block down, you have to, it has to be the right block because you can only push blocks one tile. Um, So you have to do the whole circumnavigate the dungeon thing. They didn't have that. Um, They just had, they had the the hole and you just had to fall down the hole in the right spot and they redesigned the room below. So it was just like a, uh, a wall and you had to fall on the right side of the wall and then you could just proceed so they cut out like half the dungeon because you don't have to re-navigate wow. all of it <laughs> that sounds so much better this probably would have been my favorite dungeon in the game had they done that for the uh for the version <laughs> we're playing yep i remember being a zelda purist on the forums that like mm-hmm. zelda universe or zelda legends or something and being like mad about that i was like oh they made it easy for young players or, <laughs> I, I had, to, I do, I had to, I had to go up the hill both ways in the two foot of snow with no shoes <laughs> everybody else has to <laughs> don't know how to play uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it was the right choice in the gba version uh, <laughs> oh my gosh okay look i want to uh, i want to i want to get into a heavier conversation about that one puzzle a little bit later and talk about whether we think it's fair or a good puzzle or not. Before that happens, Melora, I'm going to pass it to you. What did you think of this dungeon, just generally? When you guys asked me what episode I would like to do, and I'm like, I love all of the dungeons. And then in my head I went, Asterix, except Ice Palace. (laughs) 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 However, I thought that this would, uh, when that was brought up, I'm like, well, Max, okay, hell yeah, I'm doing that episode. But also, I was like, why would I want to talk about one of the ones I love the most when I could talk about literally the most difficulty I've ever had in any Zelda game in a dungeon? (laughs) Like, I thought... I've always thought that I'm pretty good with spatial awareness, like where I am in a place, what's above me, what's below me. Like I can kind of picture things in 3d in my head. This is really hard to keep track Mm of it. It is especially, I mean, most of it is fun. It was exactly like Matt said, you go through it. You're kind of like, okay, it's challenging, but I'm kind of having fun. It's like right at the edge of like what I feel like I can do, like I'm figuring this out. By the way, I think maybe the hookshot kills the ping gators. I think they're called like penguins too. Pengator. That's it. Yeah. Um, I think you can come with a hookshot in like one hit. But I also just what? Yeah, I came in here. Oh, Matt, Google yeah. that pengators. Um, yeah, check that out for me because my memory is garbage, and I, I so I came to this dungeon way earlier just because I run around and explore and I have a really hard time doing things in order, which is why my favorite four Zelda games are Breath of the Wild, you know, like uh, Link to the Past, the original one, and then, you know, Link's Awakening because I can kind of mess around. So I came here and just bombos my way through it with like nothing that I should have to be able to do this dungeon except bombos. And I was just like, oh, that was fun. And then I got the mail and I'm like, well, I'll come back later, (laughs) you know? So, uh, but I didn't do the puzzle then. That puzzle is so hard for my brain to keep track of where I need to go around. And I remember as a kid, I would always throw myself down the wrong hole. It's like when you're driving and you take the wrong turn and then for some reason you remember the wrong turn like it's the right turn and you, you do, do that every, every time. time. Yes. 
that's what I did as a kid. I'd fall down the wrong hole every single time and then have to recircumvent the dungeon. And then as I'm falling, going, oh my God, I went down the wrong hole again. And then I hit the ground. I'm like, back to the start. So yeah, so that was this dungeon for me. And so replaying this, so it's been about 25 years since I've played this game. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, yeah. I basically right before, I don't know, that's rough. I have so bad with math. The last time I played it was right before Ocarina of Time came out. So whenever that was. 98, yeah. Yes, somewhere around there. I was probably 96 because I left for college and, you know, I packed getting, up my SNES. You said 23, Jackson? Jackson gives me 23 years on that math check, so. All right. It has been 23 years since I played this game. I played a couple of minutes or a couple of hours on the Game Boy Advance and then actually I think Link makes a sound when he swings the sword and it was driving me crazy and I'm like I'll do it because I was a purist too but also the sound was annoying to me and I'm like I can't cut grass so I put it down and then never went back to it hey, hey um, Melora, so, Melora real quick I think your yeah. microphone is rubbing against your, um, your oh zipper. thanks no thanks for letting me know it probably is um, so I didn't know how much I'd remember in this game the um, ever <laughs> Not flexing. Everything in this game was shockingly easy for me. Um, going back and playing it after all this time. I played like a million hours as a child, though. Like, I think it was just reflex. But getting to the Ice Palace, it was still exactly as difficult as I remembered, except I was a little better about not taking the wrong turn. Like, that was it. Like, my brain was like, remember how you always did that? Check before you jump down the <laughs> hole. And that's literally the only difference. It still took me forever to the point where I was like... I'm going because I didn't want to use any guides or anything. I didn't have a guide when I was a kid. I didn't have friends that had an SNES. I was all on my own completely for this whole game. So I figured out every single thing on my own, 100% of it until the very end because I didn't know about the silver arrows. Um, so I won't go further than that. I probably Matt hasn't that. Matt hasn't but figured anyway. that out yet. So we'll. Yeah, yeah. yeah so no, I haven't. So. Sorry, if you, just, if you could continue talking about that. Nope. No, it. no, no. Don't do um, it. <laughs> in fact, I don't really know what I'm talking about, obviously. It's been a long time since I played this game. You probably shouldn't listen to me. <laughs> this level is, it was so difficult. I actually did really enjoy it, though, but I think it helped a little bit, me knowing that it was going to be hard for me, or maybe easy. I was really interested in seeing, going back to it, um, how much, like, what it would yeah. be like. And yeah, everything else was kind of shockingly easier than I remember. Like Mothula, I think I only took three hits. Oh, who even? Who even are you? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. As if that's not a total flex. Come on. I know that's a little bit of a flex. Mothula is the closest um, Zelda's ever been to bullet hell. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, actually, blind is really hard. The two. Oh, so here, this one's for you, Matt. The hardest one I had that I was so frustrated with is Muldrum. I freaking hate that boss oh, i fall off yes. that platform so many times Gosh. like i'm like this should be easy so he was the hardest one for me to beat um and then blind i i don't think blind is deceptive because you're so used to hits taking so much life off you at this point in the mm-hmm. game and so you're so terrified every time you get hit that like you're just almost dead and so it, it kind of like takes me out of it. But anyways, I'm talking about the any, other things. So anyways, this <laughs> this level is very, yeah, it was challenging. Be, there's the one steps that are really hard mm-hmm. to get down. And they were just as hard for me to get down again in this game. 
that mechanic is a little weird. It's just like floating steps too. I wonder if that's because, so all of the dungeons are on like one big like sheet and they all have to kind of fit in together so they can save space, which is kind of impressive that I think, right, Max? Like, isn't that how they kind of had to use to do things? You're talking about a sprite sheet? Well, like, aren't the dungeons all kind of like puzzled in together on one big, like, just plane? I don't know the term for it. So they can like, so they can save space. So it was like one of the different modes that the SNES could like, how it worked there were like yeah there were like seven modes. graphics Anyways. modes or whatever yeah exactly and so all the levels have to like fit in together i think on this one plane i'm not sure so um so i'm like did they do these weird wonky steps in the middle of the room just because they were like crap we need to f- like we're out of space on this tile sheet we just need to like <laughs> fit these steps in somewhere like it, it's it doesn't they don't it's not how any of the other dungeons are really done. I don't think like just random floating stair, man. Yeah, actually there's one or two other that are like that, but it's rare. So yeah, I don't know. It just kind of like they had a puzzle. They really wanted to do it. It was really hard. I kind of respect them for it. Cause I really liked being challenged and I feel like it's the only Zelda dungeon where the challenge was because I couldn't figure it out. There's other ones I've had problems with because of like a mechanic wasn't working quite right for me, like water temple and Ocarina of time. When the level floated up, I just never saw the little hole underneath the platform because of the way the camera worked. And so that's why that was so hard. And I feel like that was kind of just like a flaw with 3d being so new, you know, it was like, Oh yeah, the cameras are just difficult. But this, I felt like it was difficult because my brain couldn't wrap around it. Gotcha. Like, gotcha. So I don't know. That that's my feeling. So I um, personally very much enjoyed this dungeon. Um, I you know I've played enough Zelda to where when I go into a dungeon, I want to be challenged a lot in as fair a way as possible. And it's a really tricky way that like, that's a really tricky balance to pull off. And it's also kind of subjective because what does fair even mean really? But, but yeah. like, I felt like this dungeon really rode the balance very well of having a complex floor plan. Uh, like Max was saying, you're doing a lot of going up and down stairs. You're revisiting uh, the same rooms a lot, but also, um, the order in which you visit them matters it, as to whether or not you can progress. It's highly nonlinear. Um, this dungeon does one of those things that I really love about top-down Zelda dungeons, which is that you'll be in a room and you can see a stairway that you know you need to go on, but it's behind an impassable area. And so you have to kind of think about – like it's behind a wall that you can't get around or it's behind a push block that you can't push that direction. And so it's all about trying to figure out how to get back around to that room from another way. And I think that those those sorts of puzzles in top-down dungeons are very satisfying to do. Um, this one also, I think, had a really great balance of enemy combat and density versus that kind of navigation and puzzle solving, which is something that I don't think all the dungeons in this game really nail the balance of. Um, it, it It's kind of felt to me especially in the early dungeons, but a little bit in some of the Dark World ones too, where like a dungeon is either focusing a lot more heavily on just kind of um, hitting you with as many hard-hitting enemies as they can versus um, giving you like a complex and um, interesting layout to traverse. And this one kind of does both, which I I really liked. Um, I... 
Okay, let's go ahead and talk about the whole block puzzle to get to the boss because uh, obviously we've all got a lot of feelings about that. I think it's funny because, Matt, you were – as soon as you saw Greg the block, I know you were probably expecting that to be the bane of your existence only to be visited later in the dungeon by Greg's mean older brother, right? (laughs) Like (laughs) – um, so sorry sorry that you had to i know you have a thing about uh about blocks and so i know uh, annoying block puzzles. i know yes. i know this hits you really close to home i personally really like that final block mechanic to get to the boss um the with with one caveat but i think that this dungeon does a really good job of teaching you about the necessity of dropping through those cracks on the floor to get to other rooms and doing them in the correct spots so that you can get like the the big chest that has the blue mail you've got to drop through at a particular spot otherwise you have to go all the way back um like there's two holes in the floor in the room above that and if you go in the wrong one then you're screwed and you have to go back up above and do it again and so i think it's trained you to think critically about like okay this is going to drop me through to another room and i have to think very intentionally about um you know how that's going to work and and what i have to do um there's actually a really cool easter egg not not an easter egg but like the the fairy room of this dungeon that you can find uh you have to Mm -hmm. yeah so you have to drop off on either side of the room i think it's right after you use the boss key and you flip the switches in a particular way you can drop through and it takes you all the way to the bottom to the fairy room So um, anyway, there's a variety of instances in this dungeon where you do something like that. And so getting to that block puzzle, once I figured out that there was no way to solve it in that room, the next logical step was to go to the room above and to solve it that way. And I don't mind having to go back around the entire dungeon to do it the correct way, because the truth is that Zelda dungeons do this all the time, even in the 3D games. Like there will be a lot of times where you do something that changes uh, the layout in a way that makes something passable and then after you make that change you have to kind of re you have to get back through certain portions of the dungeon to get back to that one area so i don't necessarily mind that so much i think the only thing that i think is a little unfair about this puzzle is the fact that you think you've solved it by pushing that first block in and then it's unmovable after that (laughs) and like i know i know intellectually the reason that they did that is because they were trying to tell you this is how you do it but also that block isn't the correct one. And it's like if you get yeah. if you get up to that room above the switch and none of those first two blocks are movable, then this puzzle becomes instantly harder because you're thinking like, okay, well, neither of those move, so I don't get it. What am I supposed to do? The fact that one of them can move but not enough is enough to tell you this is how you solve it. But also, you know, then – you're immediately presented with like, but not that one, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly where my mind went to when it happened. It's frustrating, but I think you're a hundred percent right. Like if they didn't have that, you you probably wouldn't be quite sure. And it's a big ask to have someone go, all the way through it again if you're not sure jack yeah it's not something you do by accident yeah Uh, so here's here's my kind of counter argument for that is i like immediately once i figured out that you had to depress the switch and keep it depressed and there was nothing within that room that you could move to make that happen knowing how this dungeon has functioned with the multi-levels and having to drop down my very first thought was I need to drop something from a higher level to get down there. It was it like that. That was just what I thought had to happen. And I knew that like, Oh, the floor above me, there's those four blocks that look weird. 
that are also blocking that hole. So like I, I kind of figured out what you needed to do, but the fact that it was not the right block and that there was no way to just lower the orange wall and then like go into the room behind it, lower the blue wall and push. Like you had to go all the way. Like, I don't know. I think if there was a better way to, even if you only had to go like two or three rooms, so you hit the orange block again and then you go and then there's like three rooms over, there's another blue switch. There's another switch you can hit to make it, the blue walls drop and then, like that would be better than making me figure out how to re-traverse the entire dungeon. So actually, I had my initial read on how I was supposed to solve this puzzle. Like I say, once I figured out that there was no way in that room to solve this, you know, I left and did something else. But my process of elimination, trying to figure out how to solve it just within that room the first time you're there, I thought I was almost sure that the way that it was supposed to be solved was that I was supposed to let one of the enemies who was in that room step <laughs> on the switch while walking towards me because there's like an ice zombie in there. There's one of those Stalfos. I think there's a penguin. And in Ocarina of Time, there is a puzzle in the Spirit Temple where you have to let an Armos chase you and then it steps on a weighted switch that opens a door and you have to go through the door when it steps on the switch. And so that's another classic example of me letting my experiences with later Zelda's color, how I am trying to interact with puzzle solving in this one. But I was so frustrated because I'd already killed all the enemies in the room. I was like, oh, there's nothing left to step on the switch. And I kept trying to go in and out of the room to let the enemies respawn and it wouldn't do it. And I was like, okay, so clearly this isn't what that is but that's the first place that my mind jumped totally wrong completely incorrect but yeah yeah you were trained to do the wrong solution by future (laughs) games uh so i first of all speedrunners the way they handle this is they go to the uh, another dungeon first and get the staff of samaria and they just solve it with the staff of samaria um which I will not explain yeah. any further for, for Matt. Spoilers okay, I, reasons, say, I, don't, but, uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but sequence breaking I, lets you get through this faster. Yes. That's kind of why I'm surprised with no spoilers that they changed it for the Game Boy Advanced. Um, I didn't know they did that. But as someone who would have been upset if I had done that, um, <laughs> <laughs> at least to that extent, um, that big of a change like i'd be like but there's another way you know that i may or may not have done the first time i replayed this and was like no i gotta know how to do it right for this <laughs> podcast so i'll go back and well, do it how i'm supposed um, to do it well so. thank you so, so yeah. uh <laughs> but okay so kind of trying to look at this objectively the there's a number of problems that i see with this puzzle um that I think kind of makes it a bit of a failure or a pain point in the game. Uh, and the, the first one is that this is the only place in the game that I can think of where you drop an object from one floor to another. Um, I don't think there's any other place that that happens in the entire game. And at no point do, do we teach you that that's possible until that one fake out block. Like that's the one place that you can do it uh, where the game kind of teaches you that this is a mechanic at all. Um, and I think that's a bit of a stretch compared to how well they teach most other mechanics. Like that's a big leap of logic for somebody who's not used to thinking that way. Um, which is what a lot of us hit as kids back in the day. 
Um, so, so do you think if you like give us a hot take here, do you think that this is a good or bad puzzle on balance? I, uh, I think it is a puzzle that fails to hit how they want their puzzles to hit. Um, I think that they would, I think that they probably considered it a failure internally, um, of a puzzle design. Okay. Uh, I mean, because the way they, the way they talk about puzzle design and like interviews and stuff, um, is like generally they want to make the player feel like they figured something out that was hard to figure out, but they don't want people to get so stuck that they can't figure it out or like that they're, they're like really frustrated. They want it to be a smooth experience of frequently feeling like you're figuring stuff out that they held your hand to help you figure out. Um, and I don't think they really did the handholding part of this one. <laughs> uh, it kind of is just like, Oh, now you need to make some leaks, leaps of logic that are not taught or on ramped to you anywhere else in the experience of the game. I mean, I, I, I think that's fair. I guess my, my immediate thought coming to, dropping the block really does come from other Zelda games. So I guess that's fair um, as per, from your leap of logic standpoint, right? Where it's, it's, you know, yeah. they want to, they want to introduce you to the mechanic and then have you expand on it. I, I guess I didn't really think about how that has never been done before in this Zelda game. And now that you mentioned it, you're, you're absolutely right. To, up to this point, that wasn't accurate. And yeah, the, the, the frustration again, like I said, really comes for me where I did the mechanic. It just wasn't the right, the right way to do it, I guess. And and yeah, yeah, just, I I always, I always hate re retreading old paths in a dungeon. Like whenever I have to, I just don't like it. Like there's a difference between like in the forest temple when you rearrange rooms and then go back and forth, which I think Lyndon brought up as a, as an example of 3d Zelda games, making you retread pads, but you do things to those rooms to make them different to affect a change, which then uh, fundamentally changes the way you interact with that space. In this instance, you have not done any of that. And all you're doing is just, well, I did all of this and now I got to go back and do it all again yeah. to come at it from the other side. And I don't like that. I There's a, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead, Max. Oh, um, you, why don't you go? Because mine might be a f- bigger divergence. <laughs> <laughs> He's so self-aware about that too. Um, <laughs> uh, feel free to interrupt this. So this is kind of interesting to me too. And this is one of the things kind of in the first segment that you brought up about things I wanted to yell out though. It wasn't so much of a yell out. It's just something that I've, I've wondered. Um, it hasn't really been brought up on the podcast, but I know you guys have kind of thought about this is when you go in the different directions of how you're playing the games, like I'm going from the old games to this game and you're going from the newer games, to this game, and they teach things differently. Like you've learned different mechanics than we learned and neither is good or bad. But it's been interesting because like I was really fascinated listening to how boring the first three dungeons were um, because I never thought about it that way before. Because when I played them, they were so eye-opening to me. It's like what Cody brought up in one of the first episodes was, oh, it kind of lost my head exactly in my head exactly how he said it. But it was like 
to me, what I was thinking when I was hearing that episode was like, yeah, these were kind of like the tutorials that were like breaking us through and like, this is the new language of the games. Like, this is what you're going to have to learn and think about and play. Oh, it's he said some people, maybe it was him or not, but some people got to the dark world and was like, oh, I thought the game was almost over. Is there a whole new game? So, or was that you, Max? I don't know. That I, was I someone. I did talk about that, yeah. Okay, that was you. Okay, so sorry I got you and Cody mixed up, but you're both awesome. So, I, you know, <laughs> I feel like it's fine. <laughs> so, but, um, so, but going back and replaying them after hearing you guys talk about it, which is pretty interesting because then I could look at them from that viewpoint. Yeah, they're pretty empty and they don't teach that dynamic. The one thing they do teach for this dungeon, Tower Harris seems really boring, but it would be really hard to play this dungeon if you had never played Tower of Hera and had never played another Zelda game like this before. Yeah. And the Forest Temple, um, or Forest Temple, the sorry, Still Woods, <laughs> um, very dark version of the this the other the other <laughs> spooky forest yeah. dungeon. Holy yeah. shit, that in that forest! Yeah. Oh my god, it was like it went downhill fast. <laughs> um, so that one, like. Even though it was a minor thing, like the idea of having to leave a dungeon, because I know this got you, Matt, and it, it got a lot of people because you didn't leave dungeons in the original Legend of Zelda. Mm-hmm. So they kind of taught you in that, like, hey, in a very simple dungeon. So you didn't get too overwhelmed for like days, because as a kid, there were times where it took me literal days, maybe weeks to figure out how to beat a dungeon with no extra like i didn't have game facts i had nothing um so some people had nintendo power but i wasn't allowed to get it because it was a boys magazine so whatever you know i know i I hate that but my mom that was i know right but my mom let me play all the video games i wanted so i wasn't going to complain too much you know like (laughs) you want to play like 12 hours a day go for it kid that was awesome um but so yeah this dynamic I'm sitting here trying to think back. I don't believe it was taught in one of the, like the switches were taught, like all these other things were taught, but I don't think this one was. So it it was a kind of hard. Can I tell you one other thing I did actually try before, like really solidifying in my mind that that's what I needed to do. I tried to hit it with the magic hammer as if it was like a megaton hammer switch. Uh, I, I, did I did that as a kid too. I yeah. forgot about that. I that that just like, fired what? some. I might give it a shot. Wow. Yeah, that just, there was some long dead neuron that just got reanimated <laughs> into life when you said that. I'm like, he's like, I'm here. Remember me? Shriveled brain molecules yeah. swinging to life. Uh, I did remember oh, my other cool. two points I was going to make about that. Oh, do it, do uh, it, no. do it. The second one is that is, is kind of simple. This is the only switch in this dungeon where you have to place a, a weight on it. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Like all the other switches, in this dungeon are one off. Like oh, yeah. it's, it stays switched yep. once you switch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just um, run over. So it. that's not as yeah. big of a deal because there at least there's prior art within this game, just not this yeah. dungeon. But it's kind of weird to throw a mechanic for the first time in a dungeon on like the the ultimate puzzle of the, the, the final the puzzle yeah it's, it's yeah. the boss puzzle <laughs> um and the the last piece oh, yeah. was i've talked about this before about like the water temple and eagle's tower but uh players a lot a lot of dungeon design in zelda games is about getting the players to build mental maps in their head of the dungeon and how the different pieces of the dungeon connect um and that is harder 
to do uh, for some players, most players, but especially for some players' brains, um, if it's a vertical space in 2D. Like, just map, doing the mental, like, being like, oh, this square on the map translates to this square below. Like, that's really hard brain math for people to do <laughs> yeah um especially in a ma- in a dungeon that is a maze the whole dungeon is a maze everything looks like you can't keep track of the relationship between one room on one floor and another f- room on another floor mm-hmm. in this dungeon so yeah it's kind of all those yeah, three I'm, things coming together is why this puzzle is so hard and the map i'm apparently map is not, oh, go ahead. the map is not super helpful in that area like no. the, the dungeon maps really because there are no like there's no markers on the maps to like distinguish one room from another. So unless you just have memorized which rooms are connected to which, it doesn't help you a lot. So yeah, it's, it's not, I I would agree with that statement a lot. So (laughs) I have a few rapid fire thoughts about this dungeon before we move on to uh, talking about the boss. One is that if you have not encountered, Oh, excuse me. If you have not encountered the Mad Batter and gotten your magic meter upgrade before this dungeon, oh man, then, kill me now. Then man, I feel very sorry for you. Like, <laughs> like, geez, I'm sure that a lot of people have done that because the Mad Batter's whole deal is kind of out of the way, right? Like, uh, right. I, I'm sure a lot of people made it to this dungeon before getting that upgrade. Um, so I, you know, yeah, I didn't have it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. Um. So speaking of thoughts, I wanted to yell out to you. The ice rod isn't useless, and yeah. that is one reason why. Um, so I don't know if you know this, but if you freeze things and smash them with a hammer, they usually give you magic. What? So, yeah. So if you want kind of an unlimited supply of magic, ice rod. So, yeah, it... uh. Plus two, it's really fun if those uh, <laughs> rhino birds are bugging you to freeze them and then throw them at other enemies to kill them. You can them do that? Because <laughs> what? Yeah, you just freeze enemies and then you're like, here's your friend in your face. And, you know, no like, idea. it's kind of like pots are overpowered weapons in this yes, game. Yes, which yeah. I love. Rock, pots and, and so, rocks. <laughs> yeah, I love pot. They're great. It's like, thank you for giving me this pot. I can now kill this really impossible thing in one hit. Um <laughs> Yeah, so just, you know, freeze their friends and destroy them with them. So, you know, it's, it's fun. Um, well, that's a fun so, little tidbit. Good, good pro yeah, tip. so have fun with that. Um, if you ever get really frustrated with something, you know. <laughs> freeze it and throw just, it at something. Yeah, yeah freeze it and throw just it or like just freeze life. it and Hulk smash. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, exactly. You know, like, who doesn't do that? So thought you know? number two so. for me is that I've talked a lot of in, in this game about how I'm occasionally frustrated by the fact that the majority of dungeon items that you get are not related to puzzle solving within the dungeon and how that's always a little frustrating, especially again, coming from that school of thought of like um, newer Zelda games where that is almost always the case. But this is that rare exception where you get the blue mail and it tells you it's like you now take less damage from enemies. I'm like, I don't care that I don't have to solve any puzzles with this. This is great. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you, Zelda gods. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really nice like, oh, my God, thank you so much. for Even, this. Yes. even though it's weird to me seeing Link in any colors other than green and also kind of weird because it's not even like the whole outfit is blue, like the shirt is blue and then his cap is like beige for some reason. But whatever. It's no, cool. it's gold, bro. It's gold. I thought that was I thought <laughs> that was cool. It's going like full uh, Gucci. 
He's got his Gucci. Oh, he is. He's so (laughs) swaggy by like the end of this. Like he just gets more and more like this glowing red sword, like just these neon colored hats. The the Titan mitts are pure gold as well. Like, dude, he's going (laughs) straight like gangster. I want to say. I don't know if that's PC. Art gallery (laughs) for Link to the Past over History of Hyrule has like the official artwork of Link standing there with his sword and shield. But every different combo of the different like weapons and mail uh in her it's gallery. the only like fan art i have in the gallery that Wait, it's fan you know, art it, yeah it's fan art someone did such a good job because there is actually there is some fan art that other sites have used since the 90s that it's become accepted as like you know like art that you're going to use for your wiki you know like because it's just been around so long we didn't have any I had other no art, to use. art yeah no because they use the official art and they did such a damn good job with it <laughs> that i'm like this is going to be useful for someone somewhere at some they, point they in paper time. dolled it it's like same pose yeah it is yeah exactly <laughs> wow, like hats and stuff overlaid on to like and they like they the kept it exceptionally accurate to the game sprites like it's so well done mm-hmm. that exactly i mean it <laughs> fooled me when i first saw it and i was like whoa wait what's going on and then i'm like oh good on you dude i mean he wasn't trying to fool anyone it was just that good looking so i was like yeah i'm just throwing it in there because i'm like that's going to be useful for someone and it's like yeah every iteration of it and it is glorious Uh, and it is so tacky beautiful i love it so much one one thing that's interesting about link to the past is like talking about the the mail and the sword upgrades and stuff it has the biggest um delta between the starting gear and the ending gear of any zelda game uh, other than maybe adventure of link uh which i don't it has a different system, but like yeah, I think someone you do oh, times okay. eight your starting damage with your sword swings by the end of the game, and you do you take one uh, quarter of the amount of damage. Wait, do we get another mail. upgrade to the blue mail? No, <sighs> <laughs> but like that back if you if you read interviews from this time, I keep, I'm going to keep referencing the interviews. My head's been in interview land for a while now, um, but. I wonder why in this time period, like very late eighties, early (laughs) nineties, they talk about, they call Zelda an RPG. Um, Yeah. Like this Zelda had not yet moved fully and decisively into the action um, game category yet. It was an RPG. Uh, So like it's kind of a natural progression that they went to stats and level ups and stuff in Zelda two. And it was still a natural progression when they had such a big amount of upgrades to your gear. That was just straight power upgrades. You don't really see that in other Zelda games. And it wasn't really until Link's awakening that they were like, no, this isn't really an RPG. This is a adventure game an action adventure game. Um, I just think that's it. Yeah, I got in really confused arguments with people because I'm like, but this is what an RPG is because I played so much Zelda and they called it an RPG. And I'm like, and they're like, no, an RPG is not. So, yeah, I remember. I'm like, well, and it's why it's so happening? fun because like the whole conversation these days about what is an RPG and what just has RPG elements is really tough to parse because a lot of what we consider to be just at modern action adventure games borrow heavily from RPG stat grinding elements. I mean, you know, if you're playing Assassin's Creed these days, then you're basically playing an action RPG, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yeah. that in a lot of weird ways, I think Zelda as a series is actually adventure of link aside one of the game series that has 
actually largely kind of not incorporated too many of those elements throughout its history, like compared to a lot of other franchises. Yeah, I mean, the the, the sole exception there being, uh, I mean, gear upgrade systems are kind of RPG-ish, but like, I, it's hard for me to, you know, hear anyone say that Zelda is an RPG, even though that, that may have been the original intent, just because I think about RPGs as like, dialogue trees and you get to make your character whatever you want it to be and you get or like not whatever you want it to be right but like you have a certain amount of power over what your character does the choices they make like you know i, I think dragon age mass effect uh you know witcher things like that like that's role-playing game right is where i go with that and and i don't associate zelda with that very much if at all personally People yeah, we had think, very different popular definition of RPG in the nineties yeah, than, yeah. than we do these days. Um, I think too, um, I remember some of the confusion with me being too, because yeah, I feel the same way and I love RPGs. I really do. Zelda is kind of an exception game for me in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, but Oh my God, my brain. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, I, where I would get stuck in the argument was like, I was like, but I do have a choice because I have all these different items I can play with and all these different ways I can complete the game. So like, that's kind of how my brain made this weird connect. Like, I'm like, but I'm given choices on how to play. So it didn't really quite make sense to me, but then terms got more figured out. But, um, yeah, it, also, too, that was one of the interesting things about this game. This is one of the first games I ever remember where you actually had, like, a lot of options on how you could interact with the items that mm. you had and how they affected enemies and how they affected the world around you. There's hardly ever one way to beat a boss. Like, it's really, it was kind of groundbreaking in that way. I don't know if there were any other things that had it in such a large scale, at least like where it was so much of the game. And this is tough for me because the only, like, again, this era of game design, I like, you know, I was alive for it, but, uh, you know, my introduction to video games was during the SNES era, but it was mostly via Mario, Super Mario World, you know, which has none of these considerations at all. And then I got into more different kinds of games later in the N64, Xbox, all those eras. Um, but I do know, I mean, in the SNES era, like there were a lot more what we consider to be what we would consider now to be kind of like stat grindy RPG sort of games. You know, we had like Earthbound and we had, um, you know, the Chrono Triggers and, and you know, all those games of the world, right? And this is very much not that, but I, I guess that is just kind of like the, the games industry was very young at the time. And so it's just the process of trying to figure out how do we identify these things, you know? Yeah. Which is a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's, this was really the, birth or maybe not the birth but like the kind of forming like the like solidification of a lot of genres i think was happening in this Mm -hmm. time because like the nes was like and you know atari and sega and all that was kind of like well okay here's some really funky ideas let's see what works and then this was kind of like it was really when you were they were really given enough freedom to maybe play more with ideas than just have something very straightforward Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, it was like, um, this is, I think really when stuff 
actually came into being. So before it was just kind of like, oh my God, cool. We made a thing. Yeah. Um, you can play it. Neat. <laughs> so, and this was like, all right, we're going to make like pol- something polished. Yeah. And there was a lot of stumbling, but you know, I think they did a really damn good job. And that's how come Link to the Past like stood out so much and has been and con- and, favorite game and for continues so long. to for for a lot of really good reasons. Yeah. Let's uh, let's move on real quick to talk about the boss, Matt. What was the name of this guy again? Cold Stare. Spelled with, with a K H. Yep. Okay. K H O L D S T A R E. All right. And you know, the thing that's funny to me about that is that the spelling of that name in English would have been figured out in localization. So I guess some like translator in Nintendo of America Dan, Dan was just Alson. like, okay. Of Dan course, Alson you know that. did the translation and he named all the bosses. Cool. We can blame him for Cold Stare and Mothula and Vitreous. <laughs> they should have just called him Mothra. Just be done with Mothra. it. He's a Godzilla villain. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Just right. Let it be what it is. Yeah. Okay, so Cold Stare. Um, I don't know that there's actually too much to get into about this boss. I think they the trade-off for having an incredibly complex dungeon was just that this boss is kind of, I wouldn't say a pushover, but I mean, this dude's got nothing on Mothra and Blind, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, it was kind of interesting when you had to, you know, break him out of his lull enchanted ice cap, and then that was kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying it to find takes something. An positive. entire magic meter's worth of fire rod, by the way, to melt that ice cube. And I don't know what happens if you run out of magic. Uh, uh yeah <laughs> what do you do <laughs> hope you got a blue potion or a green potion on hand i think that's just when you pull out the magic mirror and you're like oh well here we Peace go Bye, guys <laughs> which yeah. is actually so interesting because uh i forget a lot of times that the magic mirror will insta warp you <clears throat> to the beginning of the dungeon and i also only ever consider that as a thing that i would do in the case of like okay i'm getting through the dungeon maybe i want to go get an upgrade i never think about doing that mid boss fight um i do it if i take a wrong turn yeah and I'm like, oh, because I didn't have rewind. I I did use rewind once in this game because I drank a potion I didn't want to drink. And I was like, ah, screw it. I'm going to cheat once. Heck yeah. But um, yeah, I was like, ah, I don't care. Uh, I knew I did something wrong. Um, so, but uh, I drank a potion and then I like hit the button again or something and drank another one. I don't remember what I did. I'm like, no, two in a row. Um, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll do it to just... I always did it as a kid. I'm like, oh, I took a wrong turn. Oops. And then I just like, you know, <laughs> it was your restart, you know, your little rewind, I guess. That they so to you, me, so. like the mechanics are not at all similar. Um, so the mechanics of this boss are just you break the ice shell with the fire rod. And then, like Matt said, you defeat the cloudy bits that come out with your sword and everything's done. Fighting this boss, even though it's not mechanically similar at all, it reminded me just thematically of one of my favorite boss fights in all of Zelda, which is Blazetta in the Snow Peak Ruins and Twilight Princess. I don't know. That was just a fun little mental connection I created. I did not remember that boss. I, I do love Blazetta. Blazetta's fun. It's the Yeti. Yeah, it's it, the, the Yeti it's wife the Yeti. who becomes possessed by the Mirror Twilight of Twilight. I, I, that's the one game I haven't played. Well, if you were you on. You have never played Twilight Princess? 
so that was when so my arms didn't work for like nine years okay, and well, fair enough so I, <laughs> I mean yeah man jeez <laughs> it's why i played a lot of minecraft i could use like my pointer fingers and but i couldn't hold it i couldn't hold a controller let alone the freaking wii which was like the bane of my existence really, so i really want to how do you feel how do you feel now matt how do you feel now I feel like a complete <laughs> jackass. Okay. How dare you, Matt? No. <laughs> um, to be fair, um, I could have played it on the GameCube, but I was salty and it was a little weird. I had played like a couple of hours on it um, before it hurt really bad. And then, um, I was like, I tried to play it on, oh, sorry, the GameCube and um, having the screen reversed yep. when you have a really good <laughs> visual memory literally gave me migraines so i was like huh. nope and then the i think the controller came out but i was still kind of salty and i'm like i'll do it you, when they remaster you it, played it for with new me at e3 2006 no oh no Did i didn't miss it? i never even stood in line for it because remember i was hanging out by the nintendo booth bugging them constantly like a little nerd to do an art book so that's <laughs> like what I spent but they yeah. did it my whole but they, they made like, an art book hey guys they did <laughs> you got your wish thank this lady no <laughs> i was relentlessly very nice and not trying not to be too annoying i was trying to make it very interesting god e3 as opposed e3 to 2006 i'm trying to remember what were the big what were the big Twilight was Princess. that was that that wouldn't it? Twilight Princess, Mario Galaxy, Assassin's Creed One. Huh, what a year! Uh, wow, I went first. Assassin's yeah. Creed. Ooh, I did run around and play a bunch of the other games. Like you know, there was I went and got some Harvest Moon swag, you know, stuff like that. But I, I pretty much just gravitated back. Like, hey guys, so you know, there's a lot of missing art, and you probably should do an art book because people really want it. You know. <laughs> So, yeah, that was that was me. But and then I hung out with Max. And so let's let's go ahead and move out of the dungeon map. Um, obviously, this was a huge one with a lot to talk about. Let's get into part four, which is where we talk side quests. And let's go through this one pretty quick. I'll go first. Matt, you go second. And then Melora and Max, if you have any side quests that you want to mention specially, then go for it. Um, the only real thing that I did between Gargoyles Domain and this one was collect a few heart pieces and then um, – uh, I did track down the Mad Batter because I had not done it previous to uh, this dungeon, and I'm very happy that I did that. I like I didn't know that I was that that was going to be useful. I was just like I should probably go find this guy, so I did that, and I donated many rupees to the Fountain of giving you more bombs and arrows. So that was that was my big thing. Matt, how about you? So I did. Um, I obviously got my sword upgraded. Um, I also got the third bottle which is supposed to be the fourth bottle um, from the locksmith guy, the very the nondescript or, or whatever they call him, old man. Uh, I took the, the chest. This, yeah, that, the middle-aged the, the average guy. middle-aged man. <laughs> yes, yes. I took, I took the, uh, the, the box that you get from the Dark World version of the locks or the uh, dwarves house, and I took it to him. And I actually knew that he was a locksmith, and um, I figured that out randomly. I don't remember where there's some random dialogue from somebody that I talked to that was like, oh, this uh, nondescript middle aged man used to be a locksmith. And I was like, that is probably going to be useful later. 
So <laughs> I found this um, treasure chest in the you know dwarf's house in the dark world because I was doing the whole quest to bring the toad back to his brother. And I like went up to it and talked to it after I you know got my sword tempered. And it was like, you cannot open this. It's like, you need someone who can do a key. And I was like, locksmith, boom, got it. <laughs> <laughs> so figured it out. Um, I did that. And I think I got like two heart pieces. And yeah, that was it. As somebody who is uh, not getting any younger, I just really appreciate that average middle-aged people have representation in Zelda games. So, wow. <laughs> you are 31 years old. Don't even go there. You're not, there's you nothing average about in? you, Lyndon. You're amazing. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Lyndon, Max. Completely average. Don't let anyone stroke your ego too much. <laughs> as soon as I heard you call someone middle-aged old, I'm like, oh, no. No, I'm jumping in. <laughs> uh, totally fair. Totally fair. No. <laughs> okay. Max and Melora, do you guys have any special call-outs on side quests? I just did the sword tempering, which I kind of already talked about. Cool. All right. Um, I, I'm just going to say um, a random fact that I love and can't confirm. <laughs> but um, so the average middle-aged man, apparently if you pick up a sign and throw it in the English version, he gives you a little like spiel like, you know, hey, that was my sign or whatever. But in the um, Japanese version, if you pick it up and throw it, he just goes, Why? And I kind of just love his like, why? Why do why do more people not ask Link that question? I feel like everybody that Link has ever interacted with should just look at him sometimes and go, but why? It's so perfect. Oh, so I kind of love him all the more for That's that. Link, you know? the most the most so it has the most heroic known. vandal of all time. All right, let's get into <laughs> yeah. Let's get into, right. Let's get into part five, which is Z targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross i'm going to go first um i'm actually going to focus on an enemy this time around and that's going to be the bombable stolfos in the ice cavern as enemies um these guys i enjoy them purely because they come back in Link's awakening as a mini boss in catfish's maw and they're defeated exactly the same way and i would not have known how to defeat them other than my experience with that game. I'm sure I would have figured it out, but I just think it's really fun that like, I, I forgot that they were in this dungeon and then they just popped up. And as soon as I hit him and he collapsed into a pile of bones, but didn't die, I was like, <laughs> Oh, I know. I know. I also figured I also knew how to do it for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Same. Yep. I was just like, okay, nice. cool. Respect. I love, I love seeing the lineage of ideas between Zelda games. Um, and that's definitely one of them. Matt Z targeting goo. Um, so I'm, I, I'm going to go with the average middle-aged man because I interacted with him and he gave me a bottle and I, I like him. He's, he's a good dude. Um, but my backup option is the Pengators because they're giant green penguins with a really ridiculous name that I just think is so funny. Yeah, they sound like a Transformers villain, right? Like <laughs> Freezor, too. I mean, like, can you get any more like '80s cartoon name? You <laughs> no. know, like just. Oh it's like maybe gosh. the maybe the Ninja Turtles fought these guys at some point. I don't know. Like, <laughs> oh, they would be perfect for that. They would be Pengators would be perfect in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh my god, so good. that's hilarious! I love them more. Oh 
gosh. Okay, Max uh, doesn't even necessarily need to be from right this section of the game, but uh, Z-targeting pick of any kind. Um, I, I'm always fascinated by the really weird, random Dark World characters you kind of just come across. No, no single one of them is typically very interesting, but it's like in one place you'll walk into a cave and there'll be a hand and you go talk to the hand. He's like, when I was in the light world, my best buddy was in a thieves gang. And then like, you know, you go into another area and it's like, Oh, this person has a weird, you know, schnoz mouth. Drop my mic. Uh, (laughs) You know, and then then they're like, pay me 30, 80 rupees to dig holes for a mini game. And it's just like kind of cool to see these, really bizarro designs just kind of living out their lives in the dark world. Melora, do you have any particular awards for character excellence? So I'm going to take full advantage of the random, like, I don't know how long this interview is going to go on for and just go off on some random tangent because you just opened it up for me. Um, (laughs) So I never thought about this before when I was a kid. Well, I thought about it a little bit, but Literally looked this up because Matt said it um, again now that I'm older. And it's like the bunny. Why? Like, right? Um, oh, and I kind of did a little. On this. I'm very excited. Yeah. So I didn't learn much more from that um, from <laughs> that point on because it all seemed pretty clear cut. So I was like, yeah, why? That seems so odd to all of us in the US, right? Like this little like bunny because we have this idea of what rabbits are. And I'm like, well, every culture has like different ideas of like what an animal would be like, you know, the big bad wolf and stuff like that. I'm like, well, what is it in Japan? Like, what do they think about rabbits? Dude, like all of their oldest literature and art has like just so much stories about like, you know, the first manga has rabbits in it, the, which is like hundreds of years old. It's like rabbits, frogs and monkeys all hanging out doing things that are funky and fun. And I'm like, oh, there's rabbits, frogs and monkeys in the dark world. Like, and then I was on a dog walk with my husband. I'm like, yeah, bunny is such a weird thing to have. And he's like, well, you know, the Japanese have the bunny in the moon. And I'm like, yeah, a lot of Native Americans do too. Like, it's a big theme. And I'm like, oh, it's called a moon pearl. I'm like, oh, I, I wonder if there's some relation there too. And I'm like, okay, well, why not just, you know, is this just kind of loosely based on like limping rabbit is some, you know, loosely based Shintoism, like early, um, you know, like lore that, you know, the rabbit is kind of the hero in a lot of stories. He's a mischievous character, a little bit like Bugs Bunny, maybe that. um, Yeah, I know. He's like, but he fools evil, you know, like he does his thing. He fights evil for like farmers and get, which is weird because rabbits eat crops. And that was brought up like little strange. He, you know, there's stories about like rabbit paths being used to like help princes and princesses to like safety from attacks from evil. Like, rabbits are constantly fooling all these minions of evil to like you know help good triumph like it's just kind of like okay well maybe a rabbit's just not odd in japan like it's this character that's like kind of mischievous and kind of heroic and they're actually you know not necessarily afraid of things more like hares hares are actually the fool archetype Yeah. yeah yeah so it's kind of like yeah, I, I would really love to know um, someone, you know, growing up in Japan, you know, if it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, like a hair, it, it just wasn't strange to us at all. You know, like, it's just like, yeah, the, the, the moon pearl is supposed to tra- or the dark world is supposed to transform you into the shape of what's in your heart. 
And Which, he, he would yeah. transform into a bunny and we'd all be like, Link's heart is a bunny? Right. Yeah. Uh, so I originally <laughs> thought that when I was a kid, I'm like, well, there's that old tale. I don't know if it's like Greek or something like that about the guy who only has courage because he's actually afraid and you can only have like you it's not courage if you're not afraid you're because like you're not having to call upon your courage so it's just like yeah i don't care you know so since leek has courage i'm like okay well maybe that's why he's a rabbit because you know in his heart he's really afraid but he does it but yeah the other thing is too is so the reason the rabbit is in the moon is because um there's a fox a frog and a rabbit and they find this you know old man that needs help and he's hungry and they offer him his food, but the rabbit only has grass and the guy can't eat that. So he's like, I'll just sacrifice myself for you. I'm going to give you everything to save your life. And I'm like, well, that's kind of like Link. And you run into a lost old man, you know, on the mountain and he tells you about the moon pearl. And so the lost old man in the lore is so touched by the rabbit's like sacrifice that he basically returns the favor, um, puts him on the moon and, you know, lets him live forever. And he makes like Machi up there and, you know, elixirs and stuff. And so I'm kind of like, well, you help this lost old man. He gives you the mirror, which apparently in the Japanese version only, you know, Link can use. And then you go get the moon pearl. And it's kind of like a loose connection. But I'm like, you know, we already have this other stuff with three goddesses, which is very Japanese and all this kind of thing. So I'm like. Yeah, it, not, it is, you know, so it maybe. is very interesting because, like, a lot of you know, I, I would say that a lot of these games that come out of Nintendo, um, you know, Mario, Zelda, Star Fox, Metroid, whatever, a lot of them are heavily uh, westernized in a lot of ways. Like the the Japanese cultural influence does not come through in very obvious ways, at least the way that I perceive it, being a you know, a, a person who grew up in America. Um, but every now and again, something kind of leaks through, you know, that kind of thing. Or then like, you know, finding out that it's not a raccoon suit that Mario has. It's actually a Tanuki. And then you're like, what's well, a Tanuki, right? You know, so yeah, yeah that kind of thing. It's all it's all really interesting. But I think that's a good that's a good little bit of headcanon. And that's probably the, the best way I've ever <laughs> that, that's the best way I've ever heard anyone like theorize why Link might be a bunny in the dark world. So at the very least, like, you know, it wasn't really odd to us that Link turns into a wolf in tri- Twilight Princess because we're all like, oh, yeah, wolves you know, like, wolves are, like, brave and cool and badass, yeah. you know? <laughs> like- well, in Japan, apparently, rabbits were pretty badass, you know? And it's just, maybe they just thought it would be cute, too, you know? But I'd really be interested if anyone finds, like, a Japanese blog or something like that that, you know, could be translated where maybe they talk about that, so... Because I've never seen it before. I've only seen, it's the same as the pink hair, which I also went off on on Twitter. I'm like, I think I know. Um, That, like, you know, it's like, I've always seen those questions asked and no one's really answered them. And it's just such a big thing for it to be like, but why? You know, so Mm. I'm like, "Eh, just, it would make sense if it was more of a cultural reference. And there's other, it's, Link to the Past is a huge mishmash of random religions the sage in the sanctuary is actually the Holy Father in the Japanese version. He is a Catholic priest, essentially. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, Link does the sign of the cross when he goes into the desert palace. You know, like, it's really weird in today's context. 
But back then, they just added a bunch of stuff like that in the games. You know, you have the it's Tower Final of Final Fantasy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You have Venus, Queen of the Fairies, you know, these Greek and Roman references. You know, they just kind of threw stuff in there together. They're like, cool, right? And then in later games, they were like, maybe we won't do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Except for um, the questionable iconography in uh, some of the uh, Ocarina of yes. the, the Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the fire temple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the like, straight-up Saudi Arabian it, flag it, on the mirror shield. Like, Yeah, that, oh, that's, that's mostly right. what I was yeah. referencing, yes. Yeah. 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 So, and, you know, um, oh, yeah. And then the Japanese, speaking of that, in the Japanese version, they straight up say in the booklet text, which I see someone probably finally got to you, um, that, uh, but the Japanese version is neat because they do speak specifically about there being, um, there's supposed to be actual emblems on each piece of the Triforce, which is kind of uh. neat. And so I'm like, oh, maybe like, the desert temple and like you were mentioning with the medallions, maybe that was all kind of planned for this, but you know, it's hard to get all that on the Sprite. So yeah, yeah I don't know. It's kind of interesting to think about. So anyways, that was my big long thing about funny. I things. loved it. So, and it was fascinating. I was a yeah. big fan. Let's yeah. go ahead and move on to part six, which is final thoughts. Matt, why don't you wrap this section of the game up for us as succinctly as you possibly can do. So another short-ish section of game this week as we continue our uh, dungeon hopping uh, through uh, this middle, or I guess technically end-ish portion of the game. Um, By far the most challenging dungeon to date, both from an enemy standpoint and a mechanics and a navigation standpoint. The return of my nemesis, Greg the Block, was overshadowed by his older brother, uh, Jackson christened Igor the Block. We hate him. <laughs> That's worst. is that our new is that our new name for that block? It's Igor. It is Igor. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you, Jackson Willoughby. Cool. Um, capped it all off with a, a fairly easy boss fight, but the highlight of this week's. Uh, section is definitely the blue mail which is going to be an amazingly useful item as we progress through the dark world excellent guys may the path of the hero lead to the triforce may the path of the hero lead to the triforce guys this has been the sacred realms rundown we will of course be back next week with another installment of the sacred realms rundown uh link to the past chapter nine which i believe what what are we going to be on is it uh, misery mire <clears throat> yeah Yep. Yep. Cool. Aptly named. Good. Wow. Okay. Cool. Can't wait. I guess. <laughs> no. Yeah. Don't don't love that. I love that don't dungeon. Love that. Yeah, it's yeah. a good dungeon. Okay. okay. Cool. No, I really love that dungeon. So. All right. Can't wait to get into it. Uh-oh. Um, guys, I just want to bring it up again. If you have a question or an observation, or you want to tell us just how wrong we actually are, you can head over to Patreon.com/sacredrealmspod, where uh, patrons can write in and. Uh, Give us some listener mail, which we will occasionally read on the show. We do have one of those this week, and this was sent to us by Jonathan Wright, who writes – Jonathan Wright, he wrote. <laughs> as <laughs> I'm sorry. It's terrible. <laughs> He's never you heard that before, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I feel so bad. All right. Jonathan says, hey, Lyndon and Matt. 
happy holidays and congrats on the big year with the newborn in the family and the new gig at Bungie. Thank you, Jonathan. I have a short story about a link to the past that I've been thinking about sharing, and now's the best time as you head into Blind's hideout. We're a week behind on this. In 1992 or 93, my grandfather, a career mason from Mississippi, was forced into early retirement due to a breathing issue that required him to carry oxygen. He always worked with his hands and was miserable at idly sitting at home. So he got into video games, especially The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. My grandpa introduced me to the first sequence break I'd ever come across in video games, Blind's Hideout. I wanted to wait to send you the story until you were past the sequence break to not influence your run, especially if Matt reads these. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan, for your consideration. I appreciate you. <laughs> In the dark world, you can go from the Palace of Darkness all the way to Blind's Hideout slash Gargoyle's Domain, as long as you have the hammer, that is. Once you do, you can come back to the light world over the border of Kakariko and the Lost Woods, find the Dark World portal, switch back to the Dark World, then weasel your way into Thieves Town with the help of the hammer. If you do, then you can enter Blind's Hideout, get the Titan's Mitt, defeat the dungeon, and exit. After that, you can kick off and complete the side quest for the Tempered Sword, two dungeons early. Ever since my grandpa showed me that, it's been my typical way to play A Link to the Past. TLDR, my retired grandfather showed me how to sequence break A Link to the Past and get the Titan's Mitt and Tempered Sword two dungeons early in the 90s. Weird. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas, and I'm still waiting for a witch... <laughs> Oh, sorry. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And I'm still waiting for a which Legend of Zelda character across all games matches up to the current grid of Formula One drivers. <laughs> oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Jackson's over Jackson's over here laughing his ass off, and clearly we have something to talk about in the next episode he's on. So Jackson, catch up so we can talk about Formula One on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, really cool bit of listener mail. Sequence breaks uh, definitely are a peculiarity of games made in a certain era. I know that they're they're big in the Metroid series, um, and that is actually something that is kind of carried through. There are sequence breaks that are possible in Metroid Dread as well. But a really cool one to point out in A Link to the Past. Um, yeah, just a really neat bit of knowledge, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Max, I think you had... The train is happy. The, tra too. the, tra oh. the train is happy. Yeah. Tom Thomas, the choo-choo back there. Um, <laughs> Max, I think you had something that you were going to pop in with. Oh, um, yeah, there were two more things I want to talk about. I don't know if either of them is the one you are thinking of, but uh, one of them is I'm going to plug the website I've been working on. Oh, yeah. OK, well, if you want me to save that till the end. No, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're pretty much at the end now, but I know you you sounded like you were going to come in with something while I was reading that. And I, I talked over you. Oh, right? gotcha. No, I think I, I just laughed. OK, <laughs> cool, cool, cool. All right. Yeah. Anyway, Jonathan, we really appreciate that listener mail. We will get around to your Formula One conversation at a later date. Um, but yes, please write in listener mail as often as it might occur to you, because we just uh, really do love reading it on the show guys it has been a really good one this is an extra long episode of sacred realms but uh i think that this time has been incredibly well spent we've had some really good conversations um melora we've already talked kind of about where we can uh see all of the work that you do on history of hyrule and i i would like to say again go check that out if you haven't before max i know so 
I feel like you've told me that you were working on this before, but I only saw Twitter evidence of it for the first time this week. Um, you have mm-hmm. you have a new account that you've fired up, and I would love for you to talk to us about that briefly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for the last, I don't know, three months or so, I've been working on a database of Zelda interviews, uh, specifically interviews with anyone who has worked on a Zelda game. Um, the the lofty goal is to get every interview that there has ever been, which we are will definitely not achieve. Um, but I've basically set up a, a database with these where they're all analyzed with all their metadata, like the date of it, who's interviewed, what games they're talked about, topic tags, uh, and then a huge credit database I've built. Um, and it's basically going to be a one-stop shop for like insight into who worked on what and what they said about it in relation to the Zelda series. Um, it can be found at HyruleInterviews.com. Uh, and I haven't really done a grand opening yet, but hopefully by the time this episode airs, I will have. Um, but grand opening or not, anyone can just go there right now and it is working and functional. It's just got some rough edge- edges at the moment. Um, but I'm excited about that. Uh, and that's, I am so excited yeah, I can't, can't for wait. it. I, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and that's why I mentioned interviews like 1,200 times in this <laughs> podcast because I've been reading all of them not like you were plugging anything (laughs) (laughs) um the last thing i want to talk about though uh, we don't really have time to dig into it but you should all google um cutting room floor link to the past map yes uh this is stuff i learned recently but there's a bunch of information and old sprites floating out there of like pre like uh in development link to the past and there's information about how they like they were going to make three worlds instead of two. And it was going to be a party based RPG at one point. And like you can find sprites of what looks like it's going to be like an overworld, like Zelda two style. Um, like there's a bunch of crazy stuff out there that I, I would love to talk about more. Um, there but, were Deku trees. Yeah. Uh, yeah so you should crazy. talk about this in one of your remaining episodes after you Google it with. Okay. Whoever your lucky guests are. Okay, I'll, I'll do some research, but also, so oh, oh wait, so Jackson, uh, Jackson's listening. He just said so. So like in kind of a four sword sort of way when you're talking about party based mechanics, or probably more like RPG. Like it might have not been an action game sort of way. Oh, like gotcha. RuneScape, like, or so not not multiple real people, but just like having follower companions. Yes. Okay. Oh, like KOTOR. Yeah, KOTOR, Dragon Age Origins, Mass Effect, etc. Yeah. I mean, you just named a bunch of Western RPGs, and it probably would have been a JRPG, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Back well, then, the yeah. differences were smaller. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Well, we'll we'll, yeah. get, we'll we'll look into that a little bit, but if you have any relevant links, feel free to send over to us this week, and we'll definitely bring it up on the next episode. But that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, the history of these games and things that were planned to be included and were not is always a fascinating topic. So always down to hear more about that max and melora we appreciate you guys being on this episode so very much like seriously we've had a great time doing this yeah it's great to be here yeah yeah, it's a lot of fun i would probably go on for another two hours and just pick max's brain (laughs) so you know just saying (laughs) what you're saying is that we need to do this again sometime yeah yeah i think so (laughs) i think we could make that happen i mean I I'm kind of limited in my knowledge. I mean, this is 
I got like the first first four games and that's it. So, you know, and <laughs> I don't know, you may have to do like a bonus bonus episode at the end. I think something. we can probably so. make that happen, but uh definitely hope to uh hope I mean obviously we we would love to have you guys back on at any point that you would like to be Max. I mean, you're good for at least two appearances every season at this point, so that's great. But Melora, I mean, yep. you know, you're keeping up with the show at this point and if uh, if a particular game interests you or anything, then we would love to have you back on as well so you just let us know what you want to do and we're game so thank you so much guys this is so much fun oh man matt you ready to get out of here london i am it is uh it is 10 30 at night let's get on out and let the people get back to their days I'm, they're listening uh, not at 10 30 at night <laughs> if you are listening at 10 30 at night then you know you i mean maybe you're a night owl you do you go play some games we support you yeah we support all right guys if you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra sacred realms in your life you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod and you can become a patron if you've got no rupees it's not a problem five star apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us more reviews means that more people see our show that makes us very happy hylians follow us on twitter and instagram at sacred realms pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action sacred realms will be back next wednesday with our thoughts on a link to the past chapter nine we would love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels a link to the past can be played in lots and lots of places on the eShops for the Nintendo 3DS, the Wii U. It can be played on the Game Boy Advance. It can be played on the Super Nintendo Classic. It can be played on an actual Super Nintendo. Or it can be played on the Nintendo Switch via the online subscription. In the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We will catch you guys next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel in Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.